Hey everyone, welcome to A Millennial Learns the Podcast. My name is Abby Rancor. Thank you so much for joining me today. I appreciate all of your listenership and um, all that you do to support this podcast. So today we are talking about Vatican II and the new Pope Francis rule he put in place regarding the Latin Mass. So if you've been listening to my podcast for a little bit, or at least heard the last couple episodes, I touched on this as like a weekend review sort of segment where I tried to like talk about current events and things like that. One of those, because we talk so much about Catholic and Protestant things and issues and topics on this podcast, one of the ones I brought up was this new um, letter that Pope Francis released talking about restrictions on the Latin form of the mass, of the Catholic mass. And the original plan was that I was going to talk about it, just like touch on it a little bit on one of my Bible episodes, which comes out, which they always come out on Thursdays, um, because it was biblical related. But as I went and I researched what happened here, like what the gist of these restrictions were, it led me down a ton of rabbit holes um, trying to figure out the history of this entire thing. Because it's not just the fact that Pope Francis restricted some Latin, um, the Latin mass. It goes back to this council that the Catholic Church had established under um, like a different Pope that released all these other rules that basically said that you could use it you know, you could have a mass not in Latin. Um, and then, so this reversed that decision. And so there's just a lot of history to go into to fully understand the significance of what Pope Francis has done um, later. I think it was just a week ago that he um, announced this. And so that's what we're going to go over today is all of the history surrounding like the Pope, like what the, this current Pope said, why it's important, what the history was before him, Vatican II. I'm just going to talk about all the history that I researched about this topic. So let's get into it. Um, I am going to be looking for the, okay, let me also mention, this is my first um, visual podcast. So if you're on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, or whatever, this will not, you'll not notice any change, but my visual YouTube viewers welcome because I am putting this one up on YouTube as my first uh, video podcast. So if you like videos better, I would highly suggest going over to the YouTube channel, A Millennial Learns, and just watching the entire thing there. So I will uh, let you pause and head over there if that is how you prefer to watch your podcast. <laughs> Okay, so first thing we need to talk about is Vatican II because it's going to lead into the history of the, you know, this Vatican or this new announcement. So Vatican II history. Cardinal Giuseppe Roncalli was elected Pope. This was like in, let's see, it was in 1959 he was elected Pope. He became known as Pope John the 13th. So if you would we're not aware there are cardinals with their name. And then once you're elected Pope, you have a chosen name. So he chose Pope John the 13th. Um, I believe that's, oh no, sorry, the 23rd. <laughs> My Roman numerals were a little bit off there. So when he got elected, he was very old. He was like, I think it said that he was 80. And I'm not sure if he turned 80 at the Vatican Council or <clears throat> if he was 80 when he was um, elected Pope. But he was so old 
that a lot of people actually thought that he would be more of like a transitional pope so that he wouldn't really do that much of value or not not of value but he wouldn't do much to rock the boat because he was already so old coming in that he would be a pretty short-lived pope and then nothing would like that significant would happen and then just another pope would come in that was the thought that a lot of people had it turned out that he was one of the most significant popes that there actually was because three months after his election he called this second vatican council and people for short call it vatican ii there's an even longer name that's like more official but it's known in like common vernacular as the second vatican council or vatican ii so this was considered very very shocking because there hadn't been an assembly in over a hundred years assemblies were to settle doctrinal issues and so many people thought that um that there would not be any more councils at all because in 1870 they had a council or they defined something called papal infallibility which pretty much means that the doctrine of the pope is infallible now this was one of my biggest issues with the catholic church before really diving into it because for new listeners to the podcast I was born Catholic, I was baptized Catholic, I was raised Catholic, but there were some things that my family didn't really agree with doctrinally of the Catholic Catholic Church. And so I don't really consider myself Catholic anymore. But part of this podcast and part of like what I'm doing just in my regular life is trying to go through all of the doctrinal things and figuring out what the Catholic Church believes, what Protestants believe, and figuring out where I fall in there. And so, before I like really knew what this actually meant, I thought that that meant that the Pope was infallible. Like that people thought that the Pope himself was infallible. And I thought this because Catholics believe that Mary was immaculately conceived, that she never sinned, and that she is unique in that and that she never sinned because she's the mother of God. I do not understand that only she could be infallible. And so I thought that Catholics believed that not only was Mary not infallible or immaculate, but I also thought that they believed that the Pope himself as a man was infallible as well. That is not true, I've come to learn. What Catholics do believe is that the church doctrine is infallible that the um dogma of the church is infallible um and so it's not the man himself like they believe that the pope is a sinner that the pope needs god uh needs jesus and the savior you know he's he doesn't not need a savior um but they believe that the doctrine of the church is true and infallible so um this the actual definition of papal infallibility is in the Roman Catholic Church the doctrine that in specified circumstances the Pope is incapable of error in pronouncing dogma. So he's only incapable, like I was saying, he's only incapable of an error in dogma that he pronounces. So that was that term and that idea was defined in 1870. So many people at eight, in 1870 said that since the Pope and the you know, the dogma of the church is infallible, there should not need to be any more councils to discuss or to 
um, settle doctrinal differences because whatever the church says, that doctrine stands and it's infallible. So, um, it was a huge shock to everyone. They really thought that he was going to lay low as Pope and then he like threw this bombshell in where he was one of the most influential ever. And he called this um, assembly. So he announced it in 1959. And then it took three years of like preparation. So it's funny, they really thought that he was going to be like, going to lay low as Pope. And then he threw this big bombshell and was really like one of the most influential. So people were very, very shocked that this council was even happening. It took three years to prepare all of what they were going to talk about and who was going to be there and what the structure was and all this stuff. There's a lot of preparation in it. And I don't exactly know all of the preparation, but I do know it took three years. So there were four sessions of this council. They started in 1962 and they went from 1962 to 1965. So it began on October 11th, 1962 on the feast of the Blessed Mary. As like, if you are aware of Catholicism at all, Mary is a very, very big deal. And so they started on her feast day. Um, so they did the whole first session and then John the 23rd, Pope John the 23rd, who had called the session, uh, actually passed away before the second session started. So he was only Pope for like three to four years, maybe a little bit over three years, but he passed away before the second session. He was succeeded by the Archbishop of Milan, Cardinal Giovanni Battista Montini, very Italian. Um, and he took the name Paul VI, so Pope Paul VI. So there were lots of cultural changes after World War II, and it was causing them to reconsider how the church practiced. The church was very traditional still, very, very like they would only do Latin masses, which we will get back to. Um, and they, they just were very kind of exclusive. Like it was an exclusive group and it was hard to like get in and hard to, um, yeah, it was just pretty exclusive from what I can, can tell. So after this cultural change and this whole war, they wanted to make it more inclusive to people and more accessible to people. And they wanted to make it more open to new believers. So they were in the process of reconsidering all these church practices. And there were a lot of difficulties within these sessions of Vatican II. For example, they said that the themes of the days were numerous and complex. It wasn't like they just said, okay, how are we going to do worship this day? It was like very, very like contentious, I almost said pretentious, contentious arguments about different things. So like worship was one of them, Latin mass versus like vernacular mass. Um, there were just a lot of topics that were discussed for the first time ever. It wasn't that so much that doctrines were changing necessarily because, you know, I don't think it threw a wrench in like the papal infallibility doctrine because some things just literally were never a doctrine. They were never dogma. They were discussed for the first time in this council because so much had been changing in the modern world that they had never been discussed before in the Catholic church. So I, I like the idea of Vatican II because I do think, I mean, not that the word of God is changing over time and not that some things should change over time, but I do think that some things in the church probably should. And this is an example of like 
the Catholic Church being responsive to the times and realizing like what should be changing and what should not be <clears throat> and trying to find their line in the sand on certain issues because obviously like yeah like I said I don't think church dogma should change I don't think really like certain ideals that we find in the Bible or certain rules or certain whatever should change but I do think how we talk to people should change like for example if um if cow this is not real. This is not a real example. But let's say that a church was not allowed to never posted something on social media because it wasn't a thing before, you know, and they would only like tell people about their church through pamphlets or something. Well, then social media comes on the scene and they never adjust. That's just, that's just a bad way to do things. Like you, you should just be somewhat responsive to modern times, maybe not in your doctrine, but your practices of how you reach people and how you have people come to your church and things like that. I just think there is some adjustment. So I do like the fact that Vatican II tried to adjust to the modern world. Um, so they said there was, it wasn't like super contentious. I mean, they, it wasn't like mean. No one was like yelling, but there were a lot of things that they hadn't discussed before. And people had very, very strong opinions on their certain issues. Um, okay, so the first... Oh no, so the fourth session, they did this four times and just got more and more of these discussions out of the way each time. And the council officially ended on December 8th, 1965, and Paul VI closed Vatican II. He then went on to try to communicate how they would fulfill the things that they had decided in Vatican II. So you might ask, and I asked too, what was the actual result of Vatican II. It says that all 16 documents came out of this assembly. And so I wanted to see exactly what happened. Because this is a very frustrating thing about researching a lot in the Catholic Church and, and really about anything. This is not specific to the Catholic Church, but it just pertained to this for sure. Like they said that 16 documents came out of Vatican II. Well, okay, I want to know what each one is so many things like unless you have a very very specific google search they just come out with people's opinions about one part of vatican II. when i want to just have a breakdown of every single document that was a result of vatican II, and i want to read like a summary of what it says so i finally found this <laughs> after searching for a while and i'm just going to run through all 16 because i think it's very interesting so um, Vatican II, first article or the first, uh, document was, I'm not going to say the, um, Latin name because I'm just going to butcher those. So I'm going to say the English name only. Uh, the first one is the constitution of the sacred liturgy. So this one ordered an extensive revision of worship so that people would have a clearer sense of their own involvement in mass and other rites. Now, I believe part of this was extending the traditionally Latin only mass to vernacular. So like local language mass. That was a huge thing that came out of Vatican II. And I believe it was in this first document because that pertains to worship and making it um, like a clearer sense of people's uh, roles in it. That would make sense that it, this is the one that included expanding it from Latin to your local language. Uh, the second one is a decree on the instruments of social communication. 
This says, it called on members of the church, especially the laity, to instill a human and Christian spirit into newspapers, magazines, books, films, radio, and television. So, again, like, all these things were somewhat new, or um, people were just kind of navigating how to deal with things like TV and, you know, more pop culture, more communication, just in general. And so this one specified that we need to have Christian pop culture, basically, which I thought was really um, an interesting thing that they actually wrote a whole document about is the influence of the Catholic Church in pop culture. Okay, dogmatic constitution of the church. This one said it presented the church as a mystery, as a communion of baptized believers, as the people of God, as the body of Christ, and as a pilgrim moving toward fulfillment in heaven, but marked on earth with a sanctity that is real, although imperfect. Um, this one also is ki kind of shocked me because I thought that, um, I mean, I grew up like all of those things sound familiar from mass, like a communion of baptized believers, the people of God, a body of Christ, all those things sound very familiar from my time that I spent in mass. And so I'm just, it was weird to think of a, like what, how did they define it before Vatican II, you know? Um, I also read, side note, that uh, the Mass actually used to be celebrated with priests facing the altars. Like, the altars used to be flipped around, basically. So, um, priests' back would be facing you and celebrate the entire Mass with the priests back to you. And then it was in Vatican II that they decided to flip it around and have, like, a community of believers and the priests would face the people. I believe that also went into the first document about the worship and having a clear sense of your worship, stuff like that. Okay, so the next one is Decree on Ecumenism. And this says, it says that ecumenism should be everyone's concern and that genuine ecumenism involves a continual pers personal and institutional renewal. Now, I meant to look up what this meant. But I did not, so I'm just going to do that really quick. Okay, Ec ecumenism. Let me... Ecumenism. Ecumenism. Okay, ecumenism. So that means the principle or aim of promoting unity among the world's Christian churches. Okay, this makes sense. So a big thing in Vatican II, they said, was Christian unity. So having um, Catholics be, you know, able to talk to Muslims and... Uh, talking to atheists. That was a huge, huge focus of Vatican II. So. Okay, the next one is about Eastern Orthodox um, churches. Basically, it says that variety within the church does not harm the church and its unity, and that Eastern Catholic churches should retain their own traditions because the relationship between them had been pretty um, rocky, I think, for a while. And so they want to promote unity. It's a big theme for Vatican II. Um, the decree on bishops' pastoral office in the church said that each bishop has full ordinary power in his own diocese and ex is expected to present church Christian doctrine in ways adapted to the times. So it gives um, the bishops more power, which we see a lot today. Uh, the decree on priestly formation says it's recommended that seminaries pay attention to the spiritual, intellectual, and disciplinary formation necessary to prepare priesthood students to become good pastors. Um, declaration on the relationship of the church to non-Christian religions. 
It said the Catholic Church rejects nothing that is true and holy in non-Christian religions, called for an end to anti-Semitism, and said any discrimination based on race, color, religion, or condition of life is foreign to the mind of Christ. So this pertains to the fact that apparently before Vatican II, a lot of Catholics didn't like the Jewish people. At least that's what one article said that I can't really, con I don't know if that was like really a major theme, um, but they kind of in this downplayed the fact that Jews killed Jesus. That was like a major doctrine that they kind of backed away from and said, do not be like anti-Semitic. Um, Declaration on Christian Education affirmed the right of parents to choose the type of education they want for their children, upheld the importance of Catholic schools, and defended freedom of inquiry in Catholic colleges. Um, the Dogmatic Constitution on Divine Revelation. It says the church depends on scripture and tradition as the one deposit of God's word and commended the use of modern scientific scholarship in studying scripture. Okay, decree on the apostolate of the laity said that the laity should influence their surroundings with Christ's teachings. I think that's a really good one. Declaration on religious freedom. It said that religious liberty is a right found in the dignity of each person and that no one should be forced to act in a way contrary to his or her own beliefs. Um, a decree on the ministry and life of priests said that the primary duty of priests is to proclaim the gospel to all, approved and encouraged celibacy as a gift, and recommended fair salaries. The decree on the church's missionary activity said that missionary activity should help the social and economic welfare of people and not force anyone to accept the faith. I also think that's pretty good that like if you help with physical needs first and then um, share Christ. Although I do think that sometimes it goes too far where like people go over and literally don't talk about Jesus at all. They are focused on helping the poor, which is amazing. But then you should probably be bringing up Jesus a little bit, at least. Um, but it doesn't sound like that is this doctrine. It sounds like a good, a good balance. And then this is pastoral constitution on the church in the modern world. It said the church must talk to atheists. A continual campaign must be waged for peace. Nuclear war is unthinkable and aid to underdeveloped nations is urgent. It said marriage was not just for procreation and urged science to find an acceptable means of birth regulation which I think that one got reversed later because I know that the Catholic Church still accepts NFP, which is like, you know, natural family planning and is not, it's not for artificial birth control. So I don't know what happened there. I'll probably do a whole podcast episode on like the Catholic Church's history with NFP and birth control and stuff because that is very fascinating to me. But all of those were the doctrines that came out of Vatican II. Now, Again, they focus a lot on unity and a lot on um, expanding it to more people, like a lot on um, helping people, unifying the church, and pretty much expanding and how you should act to people who are not in the church. So most of that, I think, was really good. But Vatican II is very controversial, I think a lot because of the worship. Some people were very, very strict on the Catholic Mass stuff. So... Um, many people kind of split from the Pope and did not want to follow Vatican II because they thought that since the original Latin Mass was the original Catholic Mass, it was in Latin, they did not want to go and do it in their own language. They thought that, that was not correct. So 
There was one French Archbishop, Marcel Lefebvre, <laughs> who said he refused to conduct the Mass in any other language other than Latin, saying he preferred to walk in the truth without the Pope than to walk a false path with him. So this was very controversial. I think things like helping the poor, obviously it's kind of less controversial, but things like changing the entire um, way that you do Mass, that is going to ruffle some feathers. So the purpose was unity. But even now, like in uh, on Instagram, I see so many things referencing Vatican II and like if people disagree or agree. So I think it actually caused a decent amount of division in the church. So let me other let me see. Okay, so that brings me to this new Latin Mass rule that that Pope Francis just implemented. So he reversed the Vatican II decision that the church should be open to every language. He didn't really fully reverse it, but it's definitely a step in that direction. So what he did was say that um, the mass cannot be, well, okay, let me take a step back. I wanna go over the motivation for why he did this. What he said was that the mass cannot be like a full new um, congregation can't be established that's only doing the Latin mass. There's a lot of restrictions on where you can do the Latin mass and when. And each bishop um, is responsible for its own diocese and can continue to do the Latin mass or not. But you cannot create new Latin Masses. You also cannot create a whole congregation that's doing Latin Masses. You have to make sure that the places that the Latin Mass is being held is not completely like separate, I think, from the vernacular Mass. So there's a lot more rules about it, basically. It's not banning it completely, but it's definitely putting a lot more restrictions and not adding kind of new Masses to it. So why is he doing this? He thinks... And a lot of Catholics think, I believe, that Vatican II caused a lot of division with this Latin Mass issue in particular. There are some churchgoers that will only do the Latin Mass. They look down on the people who do vernacular Mass. There are congregations that are almost completely separate because some only will go to Latin, some will only go to the Mass in their language. So the problem is not in the Latin or in the vernacular version of the mass. It's just the fact that the church is being divided on what they think, what mass you should go to. Now, some people bounce back and forth between both. They like the Latin mass because they think it's like, you know, the it is, they don't just think it, it is the original form of the church. And so it's called an extraordinary rite. And that is like, you know, it's, it's an extra, they'll go every so often because they feel more connected to the history of the Catholic church and things like that. But then they'll go back to like their regular like English mass so that they can participate more. I know a few people who have talked to me about this and they agree with that. So like they'll go back and forth and they'll just occasionally do the Latin mass. But throughout, you know, the world, there are Catholic churches that are being divided because like half will do Latin, half will do vernacular and they kind of conflict with each other. So the goal of this was to bring back more unity, as was the goal with Vatican II. However... Um, my Instagram literally was in an uproar when this was announced because 
even if you don't go to Latin Mass, a lot of Catholics feel connected to the Latin Mass. They would like to occasionally go to the Latin Mass. They just enjoy it because, again, the tradition of Mass is so crucial to and central to the Catholic Church that if you are going to go and experience like the original version, that would be really amazing. So even people who didn't go to the Latin Mass all the time were in an uproar because of this decision. Again, it is not banning Latin Mass, but it's not really encouraging it. So you're more encouraged to go with your vernacular like Mass, the one that's in your language. So the goal of this was unity. I don't think it's causing unity. It might be causing unity in how much everyone doesn't like it. Um, it's not a new dogma, so technically this papal infallibility is still present. It's just a new rule, a new guidance for bishops and how they kind of govern their diocese. Um, but I know a lot of Catholics are not for this. Pope Francis is already a very controversial pope. He's done a lot of, he's made a lot of statements and the Vatican um, have both made statements that are very new for a pope that are very kind of controversial for a pope and this one seemed to be one of the most shocking ones because he's so radically switched from his predecessor who was all for having the latin mass plus the you know english or whatever local language you speak so this was a huge huge shift in um the kind of thought process of the pope and the vatican so Again, like this was in order to encourage unity, but from what I've seen so far and, you know, time will tell, I guess, but the goal is to bring churches together to all celebrate one mass and to not have this division between Catholics of like wanting Latin mass or wanting um, this local language mass. But I think what's happening is because instead of, instead of like leaning towards the Latin side, which is the more traditional side he leaned towards the more contemporary mass and the more contemporary like traditions or um ways of worship and i think it's isolating a lot of super traditional older catholics who feel very very connected to the latin mass the latin roots who are you know want the tradition to stay the same he's very much like isolating those catholics and while the goal is unity, I feel like he's ostracizing a large portion of the Catholic faith. And it's very, very controversial. So um, this was a shorter episode, but thank you so much for listening. That is pretty much all I have to say on this topic. Um, yeah, I just think it's so interesting how rules are made in the Catholic Church. I'm going to be doing a lot more podcasts on things like this, like the Vatican, like the, the councils and the history of of mass. I want to do a full one with the history of mass and break down a mass and show where each part came from because um, I hear, you know, a lot of Catholics say that basically their mass is exactly like what's in the Bible and that every part is pulled from the Bible. So I want to go through and dissect an entire mass and go show where in the Bible it came from, how mass has changed over time. Like the thing with the altars is really interesting to me, how they changed like the layout the physical layout of every church is now different because of decisions made in vatican ii i think that's really cool and the history of the catholic church is is very cool so um 
Let me know what you think. Uh, if you're watching on YouTube, comment below. And if you are listening on another um, platform, DM me. It's at Abby Rancor or go to my YouTube, comment below, because I want to hear your thoughts about Vatican II. Well, not just Vatican II. I want to hear your thoughts on Vatican II and then this new Pope Francis Latin Mass. Like, do you go to Latin Mass? How often do you go? Do you know a lot of people who are feeling very ostracized by this decision? Or are the people you are around... Um, feeling pretty good about it. So I am very curious to see how this plays out because the initial reaction was shocking. <laughs> so uh, I texted like all my Catholic friends. I was like, what do you think about this? <laughs> um, and I got some mixed reviews for sure. So um, that is all. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode. I will see you on Thursday for our Bible episode. Have a great week, everyone. Bye.